0: Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I am the host of the podcast that's titled Revolution Z. This is our 173rd episode, and it is titled Yanis Michael Post-Capitalist Exploration Entries 5 to 7, a follow-up to episode 168, which was the same idea, but it was entries 1 to 4. The point is, I have been engaging what is hoped to be a long-running exchange with Yanis Varoufakis about post-capitalist economic vision. We each do 500 word entries, one after another, slowly moving the exchange forward. So the 1 to 4 entries, episode 168, offered those first four entries, plus some modest commentary I interjected about some thoughts had during the process of reading the entries into the podcast. And this time, here is the same approach, but for entries 5 to 7, the war having slowed the process considerably. Okay, so entry five was my turn, and it was titled, Your Freedom is a Condition of My Freedom and Vice Versa. You can see links to the first four entries preceding this one, and to the fifth, sixth, and seventh that appear in this one, both on Zenet's top page and on the Greek post-capitalism think tank site called Meta, also linked from Zenet. In any case, my entry, the fifth in the series, called Your Freedom is a Condition for My Freedom and Vice Versa, was posted December 29th, 2021. It goes like this. Yanis, self-management doesn't mean that Tom can't do things that impact others. It only means everyone should influence decisions in proportion as they are affected. And here I interject. Talking about Tom, I was replying directly to Yanis' formulations about a hypothetical actor, Tom. And below there will also be reference to Harriet, another hypothetical actor in Janice's earlier entry. At any rate, I continued in my entry number five. For self-management, an affected group that decides some issue may be a whole council, a team, or even an individual. For different issues, self-management may need more or less deliberation and require different ways to tally preferences into decisions. You, that is Yanis, ask who will determine what decision-making methods and procedures workplaces use. I answer, the workers' council, of course. And I continued, make telegraph machines no one wants, make wheels for vehicles no one drives, consume all you want, oblivious to what others want and to the size of the social product. No society can allow each person to decide these sorts of things entirely on their own. So how do we make sure everyone gets a say proportional to how decisions affect them? If just you are affected, you decide. If just a group is affected, the group decides. And decision makers always use procedures that best convey proportionate say. So, of course, Harriet decides what job Harriet wants to do. But how? Harriet's workers' council assesses workplace tasks and apportions them into jobs balanced for empowerment. Harriet applies for a job that she likes. If Harriet is ill-equipped for her preferred job, Harriet's counsel won't accept her application because her working at that job would be socially irresponsible. So yes, Harriet chooses her job, but she chooses it from among jobs the workplace offers that she can do well. Do you, Yanis, that is, really think Harriet should instead, quote, pursue projects without anyone's permission, end quote? That would imply that Harriet can utilize resources, inputs, and tools however she pleases. She need not be competent. She need not fit the environment of her workplace. She can waste tools, time, and space making telegraph machines that no one wants. She can produce wheels for vehicles that no one has. And what about other people with other ideas for how to use the tools, time, and space Harriet would be commandeering? I wonder... Do we differ about how to combine individual freedom and creativity for each with individual freedom and creativity for all? And here, now, reading this aloud for this episode of Revolution Z, my mind flashes a Bob Dylan line, To live outside the law, you must be honest, from the song titled Absolutely Sweet Marie, from the incredible double album Blonde on Blonde. I can't know what Dylan was actually thinking when he wrote that line, To live outside the law, you must be honest. Or as he might put it, from where he was channeling such a line. But I heard it, back in 1966, when I was in the throes of becoming revolutionary, to mean that society inevitably involves structures and roles, the law, and if they are not going to be impediments to your freedom, then they need to require only what comes naturally to you, only what is consistent with your development and fulfillment, you being honest. Freedom isn't anything goes. It is being honest in Dylan's sense of being who you are, and that society's roles respect and facilitate that. Well, in any case, be that as it may, I continued with the fifth entry. Switching to remuneration, you, Yanis, that is, asked, quote, "'Who will decide what constitutes socially useful work?' I answered, well, does anyone want the product? If not, producing it was not socially useful.' Did the production responsibly utilize resources, tools, labor, and other inputs? If not, not all the work was socially useful. Thus, the whole population together decides what is socially useful via allocation that we have yet to discuss. Finally, I went on, the guaranteed basic income you favor is possible but not necessary in a participatory economy, though getting a full income while moving between jobs or if you can't work is necessary but a full income, not a basic income. I interject, as it may not otherwise be clear. In a participatory economy, those who work get an equitable income, not a basic one. Those who don't work also get an equitable income, as if they had contributed to the social product and average outlay of effort. And of course, everyone gets goods like schooling, daycare, health care, etc. In other words, everyone gets more than a basic income. The only possible deviation from this would be someone who is perfectly capable of contributing effort to social output, but who chooses not to do so. Does that person get some basic minimum anyhow? That is a policy choice, and I could imagine different answers in different situations, but a participatory economy could certainly decree that yes, that is provided to all regardless. At any rate, I concluded the fifth entry in the exchange with a question. I wonder if the democratic planning you, Yanis, favor is markets plus democratically chosen policies to mitigate market failings. If so, I instead prefer participatory planning without markets at all. So that was it for my entry, and Yanis then did the next one, or the sixth entry, which he titled Five Conditions for a Democratic Workplace and posted January twenty-fifth, 2022. Yanis starts out, Michael, To my question, quote, who decides if Harriet is allowed to choose her projects? You responded, quote, the workers' council, of course. To my question, quote, who decides what product or activity is socially useful? You replied, quote, the whole population together decides. My, Yanis's gut reaction to your answers is is a gut fear stemming from a natural dread I have of, as liberals and anarchists put it, the tyranny of the majority. Then again, democracy is only possible if the demos decides. The question is, can democracy at work be made compatible with a degree of personal autonomy from what the majority thinks? I interject. As I read this, I got concerned. Was I unclear? Self-management is not majority rule, but instead a correction to it. In any event, Yanis went on. At this point in our discussion, we need to set out concrete rules for the governance of enterprises. Here are five that I, Yanis, would like to propose. One, democratic planning. Competing enterprise plans are put forward by members, each accompanied by a full rationale. They include how many resources to commit to R&D, which product or technology to invest in, the level of remuneration, etc., Members are given a long period to read up on each proposal to debate them and to form preferences. They are then invited to rank the proposals in order of preference on an electronic ballot form. If no plan wins an absolute majority of first preferences, a process of successive elimination takes place, based on Australia's ranked preference electoral system, to determine the winning plan. I interject. At this point, I thought, Does he mean the enterprises compete and, moreover, they develop their plans separately? Maybe that is an artifact of his concision. And Yanis proceeded. 2. Autonomy Teams are formed, as per the plan, by a democratic process that marches slots with applications. No one is compelled to take a slot that they do not want. Each retains the right to work alone or in spontaneously formed teams on any project she or he deems compatible with the plan without anyone's permission. I interject. There is a plan, but it seems to be developed without interaction beyond the enterprise. And then, though there is a plan, it seems anyone or any team can do whatever he, she, or they feel is compatible with the plan. Again, without input from others. As I read this, I thought, I am likely getting a misinterpretation again, due to concision. 500 words is a serious taskmaster of communications. Yanis went on. Three, remuneration. A basic salary is paid to all whose level is decided democratically as part of the initial planning above. Additionally, the collective can set aside a sum for two types of bonuses. A, job-specific, that is, the collective decides that an X percent bonus is right, reflecting the job's unpleasantness or high skills necessary. B, person-specific, that is, a reward for extraordinary services to the enterprise's overall performance, atmosphere, etc. For example, each member is given 100 brownie points to distribute amongst her colleagues across the workplace. Then the total personal bonus kitty is divided in proportion to how many points a member has received from everyone else. Four, the right to quit and the right to a basic income. To be genuinely free and an authentic participant, a worker must have the right to walk away from a company if she feels the majority is stifling her. To render this right real, As opposed to theoretical, the worker must have an outside option. This is why an unconditional basic income, guaranteeing a life with dignity for all, is not an optional extra for the good society, but a fundamental obligation to its citizens. Five, the right to fire and the right to a basic income. At the same time, for the majority to be free from toxic individuals, the collective must have the right to fire, by democratic vote, a member abusing her autonomy. A right that the collective can only exercise if it knows that everyone has the right to a basic income, guaranteeing a life with dignity. And that was the end of Yanis's contribution, which was the sixth overall, and I had to reply, and was a bit troubled about how to do so. At any rate, here's what I came up with titled, Post-Capitalism's Components, posted January 30th, 2022. I began, "'Yanis, I don't think we have fully addressed each other's views on self-management or on people being free to do whatever they like. You say you dread the tyranny of the majority. I propose to preclude tyranny by minorities, by structures, or by majorities with self-managing institutions.' You ask, can democracy at work be made compatible with a degree of personal autonomy from what the majority thinks? I ask, what institutions can facilitate informed, self-managed classmist's decision-making, as well as solidarity and autonomy? To answer, I propose, 1. A commons of productive assets to eliminate capitalist rule. 2. Workers and consumers self-managing councils to eliminate coordinator class rule. Three, a participatory division of labor to prepare all to self-manage. Four, remuneration for duration, intensity, and onerousness of socially valued labor to achieve equity. And five, participatory planning to allocate in accord with well-being. I claim these features provide an institutional scaffold on which anti-capitalists can add diverse refinements based on experience and circumstance. You describe workplace, quote, democratic planning, by which workers will propose activities for their own workplaces. I welcome your particular steps as possible interim goals on the way to oppose capitalism. I agree they could also persist in some participatory economic workplaces, where participatory planning would allow them to account for effects on the desires of other workplaces and consumers. Without that addition, however, I believe your workers would have no good way to mesh their proposals with others throughout the economy. If they were to instead use markets or central planning to promote a mesh, they would suffer horrible constraints and pressures. For autonomy, you propose that any work team should freely do anything they think appropriate. But surely each team's and each workplace's actions need to accord with what other teams and other workplaces do. I propose participatory planning to provide the needed information and context to attain that result. For remuneration, you propose steps workers could seek in a transition, could even choose for a particular participatory economic workplace, though of course other workplaces might reasonably opt for other steps. But don't you agree that rewarding talents or bargaining power would have neither economic nor moral benefit and would create major income inequalities? Also, don't we need to explain what determines the total income available for workers in a firm to disperse among themselves? In a participatory economy, the total available would equitably reflect the duration, intensity, and onerousness of the totality of socially valued work done in that workplace. Do you agree with that, or do you favor some other basis for remuneration? Participatory economy, of course, agrees with you that people should be free to quit a workplace and still receive an average income while they arrange for new employment elsewhere. Likewise, of course, anyone who can't work should get average income, and everyone should get medical and other agreed-on free goods. We agree, too, that workers' councils can fire employees for good cause, but shouldn't listening and correcting often preclude the need to quit or terminate? That was the end of my response to Yanis' response, to my response, to Yanis' response, and so on, through the seven entries. And at that point, war intervened, but hopefully soon the exchange will begin anew. It's a difficult process. Talking for 500 words about some aspect of, much less all of, an alternative to capitalism requires an incredible degree of concision, and that can lead to mishearing, misinterpreting, misstating, to confusion. I don't think confusion is necessarily a bad thing. If we keep going, we'll clear up conclusions, and we'll see. In that case, this will be a, a kind of exemplary process in which different viewpoints are taking one another seriously and trying to arrive at a mutually agreed understanding. In any case, that said, This is Michael Albert of Revolution Z, looking forward to further exchange with Yanis Varoufakis, and signing off until next time.